Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge program. The Fatherhood Challenge is a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability of an environment and culture. We're going to encourage and challenge each other to step up and do courageous things that make our families and communities better places. So let's get to it. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I always appreciate each and every one of you. My guest is Pastor Ron Halverson Jr. He is the lead pastor of the North Cascade Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we are here to talk about his father. His father is Ron Halverson Sr., and some that know him know him as the Gangsta God Preacher. I have had the privilege and the joy of getting to hear him speak before. You know, this might sound odd, but I kind of feel a little bit gypped, and the reason why I feel gypped is because... I have not had nearly the amount of time that I wish I could have had to hear him speak. Every time I've heard him speak, it was, it was, uh, just nothing short of a life transforming experience. And I will just go on a limb and say that anyone else uh, who had the joy to listen and hear him speak, uh, would say the exact same thing. But what we're here to talk about is a little bit deeper to talk about what it was like to have him as a father. What was that experience like growing up with him? But before we go too much further into that, did you have a dad joke for us by chance? (laughs) I do. And actually, uh, my dad jokes usually just come off the cuff, usually out of something that's going on. And I get plenty of groans, but I looked one up for this occasion. (laughs) And I have a picture of a seagull on here and it says, why do seagulls fly over the sea? Why because is that? if they flew over the bay, they would be called bagels. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had our groan. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> yeah. Good All to hear right. your voice, Jonathan. It's good to hear yours too. Like we've been trying to get this together for quite some time and then life just gets in the yeah. way and that's, that's just the way it goes sometimes. But, but here we are and I've, greatly been looking forward to this. So let's go ahead and just dive right on into it. So All right. yeah, tell me a little bit about your dad. Uh, how you. did he grow up and what changed him into the man that you knew as a father? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so for my dad, I think of two times in his life, his before Jesus life and his after encountering and giving his life to Jesus. Um, I was blessed to only know him um, after he'd given his life to Jesus. Uh, I can truly say that if he hadn't, I wouldn't even exist because um, my mom and he were from such so total different worlds. Way upstate New York, she was from um, a Christian home, and he was a gang leader in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, their paths would never have crossed. But um, he, he... he grew up in a rough situation. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up with a, a former gang leader as my dad. He, he grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn, grew up in a poor neighborhood. And he was, um, he w- it was really a violent home um, from what I, what I know. My grandpa, which I only knew after he had been brought to the Lord. And by the way, my dad was the first in the family to truly 
um, give his life to God. They were unchurched as they could be. I don't know if they would have claimed with the Norwegian part being, you know, Lutheran or something, but there was no church. Um, and so it was one by one after he, he came to the Lord that uh, different family members became Christians as well. And so I knew my grandpa as a deacon, um, a very different. Like my, my grandpa had been a um, hard worker, but he would drink um, on the weekends and he was a violent alcoholic. And my dad was, there were five boys. Finally, the girl came along as six, but my dad was second oldest. My uncle Bill, my dad, my dad was always big for his age, strong. Um, he, even as a kid, he he would try to get between his dad and his mom, and he would usually take the pounding. So he had wow. a really rough life, and um, you know he's only told me some, and he, I remember sometimes some stories as because we were close would slip out, and it was just like horrific what he had experienced. Um, so he was a violent young man. And when I say that, I mean, he was violent from the time he was a kid. His dad expected that of him. Um, he was, uh, he would have to fight. And if there's a bully, his dad would make him go fight him. Even if it's like four years older than this little guy. And he was in tough schools and he'd fight going to school, fight at school, fight coming home, became a boxer as well. He was a Golden Glove champion in the city of New York, light heavyweight division when he's 15 years old. Um, actually knocked out light heavyweight division for the East Coast, but it wasn't a Golden Gloves match. The guy was 21 and he was 15 or 14. And uh, his ring name was Killer Halverson. Um, he became, he, he started, you know, I would hear these stories. It's like such a different world. Um, such a lack of ethics or any of that, you know, growing up just survival. And he was stealing as a child. He he actually stole his first car when he was 10 or 11 years old. Um, so he started and he, he had, a, in some respects, he grew up fast um, as far as in a life of violence and crime. But he hadn't grown up in Jesus. He tell, would always tell me of one grandma that, was a deeply Christian woman, and he believes that her prayers made a difference. Um, and he, when he was really little, she'd bring him to Sunday school and drop him off. And when she he'd come out, she'd have some little candy hidden behind her back to give to him. And she would always tell him, you're a good boy, Ronnie, even when he wasn't. And he said she had a stroke, and she lived for 11 years with half of her body not able to move. And um, she, would, she was moved to like a nursing home where he would only be able to go see her once in a while by subway. And he said, even then she always had a half a smile and she would try to say, you're a good boy, Ronnie. And he, he would always say while he was alive, one of the things he looks forward to heaven is to be able to tell his grandma that he came to know the Lord. He became a minister, a preacher. And uh, so there was a good influence there, but it wasn't in the home. And, uh, he he was just he he'd fight in the street, fight in the ring. Uh, he joined a gang when he was very young. He was um he was feared uh, when he'd fight, and he fought his way very quickly up to being a leader in this gang. Um, it probably made it a little bit easier when he left the gang because people were still afraid of him. 
of just how it was. And uh, so he was the gang leader for the gang known as the Beachcombers. This is the 1950s New York. And um, very different, you know, back then. Drugs, he said, were starting to come into it, but it was more macho violence, stealing. Um, it was huge number fights, uh, not drive-bys. It would be like what weapons. It was well-organized, what weapons would be used. Um, he, he shares story, and I think he did even in his testimony that you may have heard. Um, they had they had a, a president, vice president. They had what they called a light-up man. I don't know why they did that, called him that, but the light-up man was the one in charge of weaponry, and counselor of war would, would go and meet with the other counselor of war when there's going to be a big gang fight between rival gangs, and they would say where, when, what weapons, and there was a night where there were supposed to be no guns. So you can tell this is back in the 50s, early 50s and such. And he was fighting back to back. Uh, lots of scars. I grew up seeing lots of scars on dad and some bad ones even his back where he's been stabbed. Where they fight back to back and the guy fighting behind him had his stomach sliced open and dad took it in the back. But that night, um, the streets may even come to my mind when he would talk about it. Robin Street was one of the streets, and I don't know a corner of, and he's fighting near a friend, and uh, and his friend's name was Johnny, and there was a sound of a sawed-off shotgun at close range, and Johnny's head, I, I'm sorry here, it's a little graphic, but it was blown from his shoulders, and, you know, Dad was just a few feet away from it. Um, so there would be suddenly hundreds of teenage boys fighting, and then there'd be some really vicious violence. And then there'd be running because as soon as the police would come. And um, that was what his life was like before he found the Lord. And uh, I, I can let you ask more questions. I could, I could, you can see how I could just kind of roll with the story of his, his life. But that's yeah, a, there's, a, there's a lot in there, too. And I, I think one of the things, you know, just for, for context is from what I understand, too, the getting out of these situations for most people isn't really this easy option because no, it could if get you, you killed. Exactly. He was feared. You know, what a difference Jesus makes. Um, he described how when he had so much anger in him and, you know, I guess being the son of a violent alcoholic, being the one who got beat up so much, there's probably was a lot about that um, in that hate and anger. And he said he, he'd see blood and it'd be more like he's a shark. It would just make him fiercer. You know, it's so interesting that when Jesus got a hold of him, he went from being like a gang leader for the enemy to um, someone who would really put it on the line for Jesus. But yeah, um, he had a friend who was a, a Christian and an Adventist whom he, no one was allowed to bother. His name was Jim Londis, was very important in the Adventist denomination as a professor and as a pastor. But and Jim was good and smart and all this, and he wasn't a part of the gang, but nobody would mess with him. And they called him Jeremiah. They didn't know their Bibles, but they knew that was a Bible name. They'd make fun of him, call him Jeremiah. He said, little did I know when I became a Christian, they called me Isaiah. So <laughs> anyway, uh, but not a lot of church uh, situation. It was a violent neighborhood. It was stealing. It was fighting. He was part, he was in an all boys school, the high school. It really was uh, just a, low, a layer down from reform school. 
he said back in the early 1950s, they walked four cops side by side, each side of the street around the school. That's back then. Um, there was a police officer in the early 1950s on every corridor. They did a movie on violence in public schools, and it was really based off of um, out of that school called the Blackboard Jungle. And in his school, um, all boys school, he said they had like a lot of ex-boxers, ex-wrestlers. Uh, there could be no women teachers. It was just, and they had police everywhere. They had a tool shed in each classroom that a teacher could run in locked with a phone hardwired to it to call for police help. And it was often needed. Wow. And that was, that was, so he, he's has violence at home. He's in a violent school. He was basically living like an animal in a jungle. Wow. How did that influence you? Yeah. You know, um, what I saw in my dad, he, whatever he was going to be involved in, I could say this about his personality. He was going to be in it full bore, all out. And I think the beauty was that Jesus took all that that stuff that was negative and that all, but there was a passion in there and focused it on love for Jesus and love for other people. And one of the things that came out of that was because of what God had done for my dad, my dad believed God could save anybody. A lot of times, you know, so it's probably a little different than some PKs. I was a PK, you know, but I, I was um, a PK to a son who had lived that other life and was absolutely in love with Jesus and the gospel. And he saw people. I wrote a sermon about his life after his death called Gospel Eyes. And it was from a conversation he had with me shortly before he died. Um, we were... I was in his hospital room and uh, I was alone with him for a change. And uh, having pastored where I've pastored, I've been through a lot of death and dying with people. It's a little bit different when it's your dad, but also um, with it, I could tell by what I was seeing on the machines and the numbers and the digital stuff and all that. It's like, this is not good. And you may not have him long. And he was in lots of pain. He never... I, you know, I he he always talked positive about God and Jesus, and was absolutely trusting to the very end. That was a testimony to me. But um, I was president in Ohio at the time, the conference there, and in the midst of all this, it's like he opened. There's clarity, you know, because when they're that sick, sometimes you just you know they're hurting too much to talk. And it was a God moment because. He looked at me uh, and he said, so <laughs> how are things going in the conference? And I'm like, that, that's not what I want to talk about right now, <laughs> you know. And um, I said, you know, it's been miraculous, but I've never seen it harder um, in ministry. And I started to share it. I didn't have to share much. There was a lot of conversations he and I could have with just looking at each other's eyes. We we actually even pastored the same church in Keene um, in Southwestern, different decades apart, but there's a lot we both knew and experienced in ministry. I shared about the disappointment in how so many in the church, really what I was saying, don't show the love of Jesus and uh, still acting like, you know, some of them acting like the Pharisees of old and 
tearing people up. And he looked up at me and you know how, when you're near a loved one, you know, even like when they're thinking the way they move their eyes and it's like, he's moving up and around to the side, I'm watching him and he's thinking for, for just the right words. And God would give him, he was a masterful preacher. Um, I learned more about preaching before I ever even, I ran from a calling where I really learned. And while I did well in college and then seminary and all on top, you know, did really well at that. My training really came from so much of just hearing him all the time when I didn't even know I was in school, but he looked up at me and he said, Ron, they, they don't always even mean it. They just can't help themselves. They don't have gospel eyes. And he captured in two words for me. And I wrote a sermon called Gospel Eyes. That was a gift from God and my dad. Wow. Um, and he put it into words. And it was like this profound moment. And, and I think one of the things my dad did best for me, it wasn't, you know, none of us are perfect. And you could tell the rough background that he had. But my dad had gospel eyes. He always saw potential in people. As dads, if we could take gospel eyes into our parenting, even into our love relationship, but even showing our care and our belief in people and helping others. Um, and, and so he wasn't, he wasn't afraid of helping those um, that many in church might not even feel comfortable around because he had, he'd been there and done that. And the Lord used him to reach many people, but he reached many prisoners or people who'd lived tough lives. He would hold meetings. He'd say, God, give me, give me the toughest gang leader. Give me the toughest, you know, give me the prostitutes, give, you know, and he would pray for that and God would do it. And, and, but he, you know, it's like, I grew up in church. Um, I got to feel a little bit of that because for about five, six years of my life, he was the evangelist for greater New York conference. So Going back as a child um, till almost my teen, early teen years, I was there. Um, I got to see those places. I I got to experience watching some of that, but he had lived it, and uh, he came out of it with a real belief of God's power to save. That was profound and continues to be profound in my life. I hope you're enjoying the program and getting value out of it. It's a labor of love and faith supported by listeners like you. Please consider donating by visiting thefatherhoodchallenge.com and clicking in the upper right corner and clicking on donate. Another way you can support this program is by sharing it with anyone who would appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I've heard you both speak and I can honestly say that I can see directly and hear directly the influence that he had on you. And I think that is an incredible special thing to have and, and to be able to carry with you everywhere yeah. you go all through your life. So this is funny, Jonathan, because you knew me when I was a uh, pastor years ago down there, tall, thin, you know, you know, male and fairly young and all. The older I get, this is interesting. I shared this at on the I did. I'm right now doing the prayer warrior seminar. He wrote a book called prayer warriors and it was asked of some of my members if I do that. And I've been doing that on Tuesday nights, which has been a, a profound honor and a lot of work, but people see me and they'll say, and this is truth. Now, if you saw me, it's like, my, you look more and more like your dad um, all the time. When I was younger, it'd be like, Hey, you're tall. Yeah. Some of his voice, but you don't look like your dad. And I, I had that smart aleck youthfulness. Say, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I get the more I look like him and, and all, and, uh, 
Yeah, and and so they. But one of them said this weekend goes, and it's not just your looks; it's your mannerisms, it's the way you talk. That's just yeah, naturally a part of me, and I see it when they point it out. And uh, now that he has passed. I find that that's pretty precious to me, actually. One thing I can see that he instilled in you is the spiritual fearlessness. I still recall this one story where he was holding a tent meeting and uh, there was a lady that showed up who was was just flat out possessed. Yeah. And uh, and she lashed out. From that story, the one thing I can recall is how fearless he was and the threats that this woman made against yeah, his entire family, yeah. and specifically you, yeah, and, I'd be dead. Yeah. and the fearlessness that he taught you and how to respond to that. That's yeah, spiritual that, that's strength. true. You know, that, yeah, so that was a mentor without thinking it like a class. Yeah, by watching him, he had absolute confidence in Jesus. And the power of God, because the woman said, uh, the devil's very powerful. And he said, yeah, but Jesus is more powerful. Yeah, it's quite a profound story. If we ever do this again, it might be, but it'd be too much to share now. But yeah, I, I would be dead, uh, with the voice, not of the woman's later, um, with horrific stuff happening where you saw this woman's absolutely possessed, not knowing me, named me by name and said, I'd be dead by morning. He said, you can't touch him. He's under the blood of Jesus. Yeah, sometime we ought to talk about that maybe. But anyway. Absolutely. Um, so I I did. There was a fearlessness to him. You know, he had some of that maybe as a, a fighter and as a gang leader. But after he found Jesus, I think it took it to a whole other level. And it was positive instead of destructive. Um, helpful instead of hurtful. You know, I think that, you know, there's, there were challenges growing up and some of them we just touched, touched on. It doesn't really matter, you know, and for you fathers listening in here, some of you have had all kinds of struggles going up or growing up in your own lives. And some of you may be having struggles now, but based off of this testimony, there is no situation that can't absolutely be turned around. And you have the ultimate choice and the ability and the access to the spiritual power that you need to completely turn things around and leave a powerful legacy like what we've just heard. Yeah, that's that's so true. And, you know, I think one of the, uh, we're all flawed, and uh, I knew my dad's flaws as well as anyone, and he knew mine. But one of the beauties was, and since we're talking with fathers, um, when I grew up, he was very busy, and then there were parts that he was away a lot, but I always knew he loved me, and I, since I was a little boy, could barely carry a pole. He loved to fish. He liked to get out in nature. He could. He didn't even have to catch to enjoy himself. He'd like to, but if he didn't, I grew up following him up and down rivers, lakes, ocean, and it was something we did together. I, I can't, you know, I think how many preachers' kids? Um, it's like either end up committed or total rebel. I think there were numerous reasons for that. One was um, his love for Jesus, how obvious, but his love for me. But we spent time together and we did something. We found something we had in common that we could like and do. And I, I look back on that. I didn't know what a gift that was. And I know lots of people don't get it. And I would just encourage any dads out there, find that, find something. It doesn't have to be anything too super special. Just it's yours with your child. And that will last with them forever. I mean, it's 
I'm 61 now, Jonathan, and it's lasted with me. Dad's been gone almost, it's coming up on seven years, and uh, I think about him all the time, and the, some of those precious moments of growing up that Dad took the time and we were together. So I would encourage that. All of that time that he spent with you did a lot to shape who you are and who many of us that have known you have gotten to know. It shapes, it has shaped what I've known of you and what I've learned from you. you. So his legacy and his influence still lives on in that sense. Yes. Because of that time he spent with you. And that's why that time is so valuable. It does yeah, so it, much. Yeah. You know, as fathers, and I think we can all feel guilty as dads, um, here's the difference. I always knew my dad loved me. So whatever it takes for that to happen, you know how the Bible says love covers a multitude of sin. That's really true. But mm-hmm. when you know that you're loved, that you can't give a greater gift. Now, Jonathan, you know, I've walked with people through death so much. Um, unusual amounts because I went back to Keene as pastor for eight years. I mean, I've, I've probably had over 800 to 900 funerals in my ministry, which is unusual. But I, you know, I came out here to Washington to be, so we could be near Buffy's folks cause they were ill and, and her dad passed away in November. Mom doesn't have her memory. Um, want to honor our parents. Um, but I was out here as a young pastor down in Tacoma. And I keep getting called back to do funerals there and memorials. And I now have these that were my youth, our children, our friends that were, you know, when I was early 30s and those younger. And I watch them now as we lay to rest their dads. And dads have such a profound influence. And I, you know, it's interesting you asked me to do this and we couldn't. But I've had three down there, Jonathan, in the last six weeks. And it's like, wow, I have two districts, one down in Tacoma, one way up here in the northern west part of Washington. But I'm watching these young men and even to middle-aged men that I love and care about. I I mean, because I get close as a pastor with them. And some of them weren't even church, but I was their friend and I played basketball. And I'm looking at them and I'm a connection to them, one to God and two to their dads. And I've had profound conversations in what their dads might have thought as just little were so meaningful to them that they talked to me about that. And so I just say, dads, every bit of love you pour on, finding ways to do something, uh, even if you're not a touchy-feely kind of person, they need to know you love them and you spend time with them. It's going to help them in hard times. That's some incredible wisdom that you shared with us. Boy, thank you so much for the time that you spent here for, for every little bit of it. There's been so much value out of it shared. So I want to I want to thank you so, so much for for your time. It's my privilege. It's really good to talk to you again, Jonathan. And blessings on all you dads. I love what you do. Do it in the power of God. If you enjoyed the episode and receive value from it, there are three ways you can support the program. You can donate by visiting thefatherhoodchallenge.com and clicking in the upper right corner and clicking on donate. TheFatherhoodChallenge.com also has a store where you can find great gift ideas for others or yourself while helping to spread the word about this movement. Word of mouth and sharing through social media also helps make others aware of this program. Any way you're able to support the Fatherhood Challenge is appreciated. 
Thank you for listening.